Let me remind you to continue to bring your dollars and your cans of food. Sandy today will be taking food to what, three families? Three families who are very needy in this apartment complex. And, uh, you know, most of us, not all of us, but most of us are in pretty good shape. We are somehow surviving the recession. And those of you who have finances, uh, in other words, you have money in the stock market and you're investing, yeah, you lost money, but guess what? You had money to invest. These people didn't have anything to invest to begin with. Uh, in fact, they don't have enough money to put food on the table at times because um, some of their kids and husbands, if they know where their husbands are, are on drugs and people are just left with nothing. And so the food that we give them will be food that actually, actually helps them to survive, actually lives. So don't cut back on that. And uh, Sandy will be helping out these families, and as a result, we'll be helping out these families. Okay, so now you're at Psalm 42. Now, this is our Psalms for the Summer Series, and I want to remind you that there are 150 Psalms, and these Psalms are divided into five sections or divisions, and they're called books. They're five books or five sections of the Psalm. Book one goes from Psalm 1. Psalm 41, and Psalm 42 begins the second book, or the second section, or division of Psalm. And if you look down there, you may, your Bible might even say book 2. Does anybody have a Bible that says book 2? Now, originally, Psalm 42 and 43 were two parts of one Psalm. In other words, there was a time... But Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 were together, and they were one psalm. In fact, some of the old, ancient Hebrew manuscripts still have those two together. Now, in our modern translations, they've been divided. But we're going to handle them as one psalm. In other words, we're going to look at them uh, together. And you're going to see uh, that they are related. And they are related through a repetition of words and phrases and concepts. Now let me give you an example. If you look at Psalm 42 and you look at verse 5, you'll see this. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him for the hope of His countenance. And then if you look down at verse 11, look what you see. You see the same phrase. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted I did within me. A hope in God. And you read that. And then in Psalm 43, look at verse 5 when you read. Same thing. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you disappointed within me? Hope in God and so forth. So you can see that these two Psalms are related and probably at one time they were together. Now there's another evidence that they were together. And that is, you'll notice over Psalm 42, you'll see the superscription there. But over Psalm 43, you don't have a superscription. Now the superscription reads this, To the chief musician, a contemplation or a meditation of the sons of Korah. But you do not see that over Psalm 43, which means they were probably together. Now when you look at that superscription, notice to whom the Psalms are written. To the chief musician. This psalm, or these two parts of the psalm, uh, were to be sung in the tabernacle. They were to be used for worship. Okay? Notice who writes the psalms? It says, the sons of Korah. 
Now, who are the sons of Korah? This can be a very puzzling thing. <clears throat> when you read this, you most people think, well, the Psalms were written by David. But no, a lot of Psalms were written by the sons of Korah. In fact, if you look on these pages, you'll see Psalm 42, 43, 44, 45, 46, 47, 48, 49 are all written by the sons of Korah. Who are these sons of Korah? You need to know who they are in order to understand a little bit about the Psalms. Well, the first mention of a guy named Korah came back in Moses' day, and he led a rebellion. Remember when Moses was up on the mountain? You saw it in the movie, The Ten Commandments. And uh, there was uh, Edward G. Robinson, and he played this evil guy. Well, in the Bible, his name was Korah. They gave him a different name in, in The Ten Commandments movie. Uh, and the ground opened up and swallowed Korah and several of his rebellious cohorts. Uh, these guys could be related to him. They could be his descendants. But that doesn't help us too much. Okay? Now there's another, op another uh, possibility. And I want you to mark Psalm 42. And I want you to move back to 1 Chronicles chapter 9. 1 okay? Chronicles chapter 9. And you're going to see that the sons of Korah were related somehow to the tabernacle. Okay? So find 1 Chronicles chapter 9. And when you find that, look down at verse 19. 1 Chronicles 9 and 19. And here's what it says. Shalom, the son of Korah, the son of Eba Ashah, the son of Korah, now look, there's Korah, and his brethren from his father's house, the Korahites, were in charge of the work of the service, gatekeepers of the tabernacle. Their father had, their fathers had been keepers of the entrance of the camp. Look down at verse 22. All those chosen as gatekeepers were 212. They were recorded by their genealogy and their villages. David and Samuel, the seer, had appointed them to their trusted office. Look at verse 27. And they lodged all around the house of God because they had the responsibility and they were in charge of opening it every morning. So here we see the sons of Korah were gatekeepers responsible for opening up the tabernacle, the house of God, every morning. Okay? But if you go back to chapter 6 of First Chronicles, we see that some of the sons of Korah were also musicians. So look at 1 Chronicles chapter 6. And look at verse 22. 1 Chronicles 6, 22. The sons of Kohath were Abimadad and his son, look at this, Korah. You see that? His son Korah. His son Azur, his son. And then down at verse 31. Now these are the men whom David appointed over the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark came to rest. And they were ministering with music before the dwelling place of the tabernacle of meeting until Solomon had built the house of God, meaning the temple, in Jerusalem. And they served in their office according to their order, which means in whenever they were assigned. And these are the sons who ministered with their sons. Of the sons of Kohath, and he lists the names there. And then down uh, verse 
37, the son of Tehath, the son of Aser, the son of Ebi, As, uh, uh, Asaph, the son of Korah. So here we see that Korah and his sons were working at the temple during the time of David. They were either gatekeepers, some of them, he probably had a lot of sons and maybe grandsons, and some were assigned to keeping the gates, and some were assigned to singing. Okay. So when we go back to Psalm 42, we see that in the superscription that these are written by the sons of Korah to the chief musician, so probably these are the singers. And Psalm 42 and 43 describe a person who is not in Jerusalem. For some reason, they've been uh, they've moved north, northward, and they are up beyond Galilee, about 80 miles from Jerusalem, their home. And most likely, it is referring, this person is likely a king, maybe King David. In fact, I would, if I were going with a, an identity, I'd say this is describing King David, the son. And he's up there in the north, and he's in a battle. He's fighting foreign forces. And evidently, the battle's not going well. <laughs> and he's in trouble. He may have even been wounded. We're not sure. But in this state, he falls into a deep depression. And he's got this dark night of the soul. And he's in this depression. He laments and he asks, why am I in this situation that I'm in? And uh, he yearns to go back home. He wants to get back to Jerusalem. He wants to get back to the house of God. He wants to be in the presence of God. And he's just homesick. Uh, and so that is what's happening here. And I think what we have is his story. He probably has come back successful from battle. And he tells his story. And the sons of Korah write the psalm. They recount the story in a psalm. And they tell the musicians, get it ready because we're all going to sing this song about how David overcame his depression and overcame and won the battle and he eventually had hope and he came back home. Does that make sense? So here's how we're going to outline this. We're going to call verses 1 through 5 the drought. The drought. David's going to describe his depression in many ways. First of all, he's going to say it's like a drought. Being depressed is like a drought. It's like thirsty for water and you can't get anything to drink. So you can't quench your thirst. That's what it's like to be in a state of depression. You can't get out of it. It goes on. So I'm going to call that the drought. You'll see why. Then verses 6 through 11, we're going to call that the deep. The deep. D-E-E-P. He's going to say, it's like being in the deep. It's like being in the ocean. It's like going down for the third time and you can't get out and you're drowning. Depression is like a drowning person. And then Psalm 43, verses 1 through 5, we're going to call this the darkness. He's going to say that depression, he's going to describe his condition as darkness. And that's what depression is like. It's like you're in darkness and you can't get out. You see no daylight at the end of the tunnel. Okay? So that's what we're going to have. We're going to have the king, or whoever this person is. He's not named. I'm just calling David for the sake of, of, of uh, giving him some uh, give him a name or identity. 
is in a state of depression. So let's look at section one, okay? Look at verse one. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. So here he is, he's up north, fighting in this battle, and uh, he off by himself, and he hears the sound of a stag, a male deer. We know that because the word deer is in the masculine. Talking about a male deer. And we know that in the drought season, up north, northern Palestine, that the male stag bellow out when they need water, and there's a drought and there's no water. They'll get this horrible bellowing sound. And that's what he's describing as a, as a, as a stag bellows for water. Uh, so my soul uh, bellows for you. He yearns for God. He desires God, and he, he, God's nowhere to be found. Like water's nowhere to be found. It's a drought season of his life. Uh, when he says, my soul thirsts for you, he probably just means I thirst for you. I'm, I hunger for you. I desire you. See, And so that's what he's describing here. And then he says this in verse 2. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Uh, because if he's fighting a foreign nation, they also are serving gods, but they are not real gods. They are fake gods. And he's saying, I, I'm hungering, I'm thirsting for the living God. And then he says this in verse 2. When shall I come and appear before God? When shall I come and appear before God? Notice the question. That's a when question. It deals with timing. When am I going to come and appear before God? Well, where does God live according to David's thinking? lives down in the tabernacle. He lives in Jerusalem. When am I going to get out of the north? When am I going to get down to the south where God is, where the tabernacle is, where the house of God is? How long am I going to have to go through this? Is what he's asking. This is a tiny question. When am I going to appear before you? When am I going to get back home where the, where the tabernacle is? Now notice something very interesting. In verse 1, he says, My soul pants for you, O God. But in verse 2, he says, my soul thirsts for God. Notice in verse 1, he speaks to God. In verse 2, he speaks about God. you see that? In verse 1, he's directing, he's directing his statement toward God. But in verse 2, he talks about God. And so that means he's talking to who? If I talk about Dr. Cain, am I talking to Dr. Cain? No. Who am I talking to? I could be talking to myself. Could be talking to somebody else. You're going to see David's talking to himself. Tells you, tells you the state that he's in. <laughs> you know, one thing when you talk to yourself is another thing when you get answers back. <laughs> You're going to see he gets answers back. So he's talking about God and he's talking about God to somebody else, and probably himself. So we know that he's away from the city by this question. He wants to get back home to where the tabernacle is. Now, that's the when question. Okay. Now look at verse 3. You're going to see the extent of his agony. Here's how bad off he is. My tears have been my food day and night. 
What does that mean? My tears have been my food day and night. It means he's lost his appetite. The only thing he's eaten are tear sandwiches. Tear sandwiches. Uh, he has no appetite. He's lost his appetite. That's the extent of his agony. There's, his soul is afflicted. And that's what Jews would do oftentimes when they felt like they were being afflicted. They would just go into a state of fasting. They'd lose an appetite. And you've been in that situation where a situation is so severe that you don't even think about food. You know, you're just agonized. Okay, so that's the extent of his agony. Look at the, the duration of his agony. Look what he says in verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night. That's the extent. Here's the duration. While they continually say to me, where is your God? In other words, he is saying that he has been in this agony the entire time that they, that's his enemies, have been saying to him, what? Where is your God? That's the where question. Okay, you had a when question, didn't you? Now you have a where question, and this is a taunt from the enemy. It tells you that he's in a foreign, he's fighting a foreign nation. Because what is the enemy saying? Where is what? Your God. We've called out to our God, and guess what? They've answered. We're winning the battle. You say you come in the name of the God of Israel. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not doing too good, is he? You're losing the battle, buddy. Hey, where's your God, huh? You claim to follow the living God? Where is he? I got my God right here under my robe. Goes with me wherever I am. Where's your oh, your God's back in Jerusalem, huh? That's where he lives back in some tabernacle? Why didn't he come and help you if he's such a living God? Can't if he can move? Shouldn't he be here helping you? That's a taunt from the enemy. And here we see why he's depressed because evidently the enemy is winning and uh, David is losing and it tells us something. That David has publicly declared when he's gone out in the battle, I come in the name of the Lord. So he's made that declaration. Otherwise they wouldn't know that they wouldn't be saying, where's your God? So he's given a testimony and guess what? He says, God's on my side. And nothing's happened. He's losing. Where is he? God. That's the taunt. Okay? So then we see a bunch of reminders here. So look at verse 4. When I remember these things, what things is he talking about? Well, he's going to tell you. I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with the multitude. Here's the things that he remembers. Here's what he yearns for. For I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God. That's in Jerusalem. With the voice of praise and and joy. With a multitude that kept the pilgrim feast. And so what he does is he's remembering the great times that he had in the past. He remembers when the, the pilgrims, there were three pilgrim feasts. You know, one of them was Passover, one of them was Day of Atonement, and so forth. And uh, he, would, uh, he remembers the pilgrims coming thousands into the city of Jerusalem. 
singing as they were marching to uh, the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. They would come marching up to the tabernacle and David would join them as king and, and it was a time of great joy and he remembers this. What it was like to worship God and all the excitement in the city. And now here he is up north away from all that. Having to fight a battle and the enemy saying, well, where is your God now? And he yearns to get back to Jerusalem. So then look what happens. He asked a question. Okay? Look what he says. This will be question number three. The first question was a when question. The second question was a where question. Where is your God? Now look at question number three. This is David asking this question. Why are you cast down, O my soul? That is the why question. And notice to whom it is addressed. David is again talking to himself. And a why question means he's trying to analyze the situation. Why are you cast down? You know, what's going on here? Uh, he's trying to evaluate the situation. And he says this in verse 5. And why are you disquieted within me? What's going on here? And then he comes to a conclusion. And look what his conclusion is. Hope in God. He gets an answer. He says, why am I so depressed? And suddenly an answer comes back and the answer says, hope in God. And he says, where'd that come from? It's just a realization. It just sort of floods in. He gives the answer. David, don't worry. You don't have to have it all figured out. All you have to do is what? Hope in God. Just hope in God. See? And then look what he says. For the help of, oh, it says, hope in God. And then he says, for I shall yet praise him. I shall yet praise him. What does that mean? What does yet mean? Huh? Does it deal with the future? Yeah, it deals with the future. So, notice what he says. Hope in God, and by the way, hope deals with the future, doesn't it? Do you hope in something? Uh, that's the answer. The answer to your problem is that you need to hope in God. And hope deals with the future. Faith is the substance of things, what? Hoped for. So you have a desired outcome, and he, his hope is in God. And if, if God is for you, then what? Who can be against you? And yet, it doesn't seem that God's even paying attention to David. They're saying, well, where is your God? And the answer comes back from David's mind or from the Spirit of God. Just hope in God. But hope also deals not only with the future. Guess what else it deals with? Hope deals with waiting. Hope deals with waiting, doesn't it? I hope things will turn out. Well, guess what you have to do before they turn out? You have to wait. So, now here's the solution to David's problem. First of all, you need to realize that God has not abandoned you. You need to hope in God. Hope deals with the future. You're not finished with the situation yet. But you have to wait for God's timing. They're going to ask, where is God? And guess what? One day, God's going to show up. And when he shows up, it's going to, be, it's going to show up on his timetable, not ours. So David just has to wait. Okay? 
And he says, for I will yet praise him in verse 5. Now where is he going to praise him? Does he mean, when I win the battle, I'll praise him back in Jerusalem? Or does he mean, I'm going to just start praising him right now, right here where I am. I don't have to get back to Jerusalem. We don't know that answer. But he says that he is going to praise him. And he says this, for the help of his countenance. So, David, he says, God's countenance. What does that mean, God's countenance? We've sort of dealt with some of this before. Remember what the, the uh, number says? The Lord bless thee. Remember that? The Lord bless thee. And keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee. That's his countenance. He knows that if God turns his face toward David, God's countenance, he'll see God's countenance, and that simply means that God's going to help you out. The phrase God's countenance means God is going to help you out. He's going to shine his favor upon David. So he's going to praise God for the help of his countenance. He expects God to come along and deal with the situation. So, we don't know exactly what the situation is right now, but this is a breakthrough for David. And the breakthrough comes when he gets the answer, open God. Uh, that's the breakthrough. And you need hope in order to have a breakthrough. And let me tell you something. This is a great lesson for those of us who are teachers. Good lessons for those who are physicians. Good lessons for parents. We need to instill hope in people. We need to be emphasizing the positive, the positive outcome of a situation. You know, I don't know what the doctors have done with, with uh, Audrey, because I wasn't in there when the doctors were there. But, you know, a doctor can come and say, well, things are pretty great. You wouldn't know whether you're going to make it or not. You know. Or, guess what else they can do? They can instill hope. Now, which one do you think serves best to alleviate the depression and the fear and probably will produce a better outcome, at least psychologically? It's hope. And that's what we need to do as teachers. I have to be pouring hope into the students and let them see the preferred future. Not get up in the class. Look, we've learned this as teachers. There's been studies on this. If you get up into a, in a classroom on the first day of class and say, only 10% of the students will pass this class. <laughs> this is a hard class, and I'm not going to, you know, not going to fool around with you. I just want you to know the truth. You know, there'll be no A's probably. Well, students just give up, so what's the use? But if I get up here and say, hey, this is a great class. You're going to like it. We're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to open the Bible. We're going to see things we've never seen before. You're going to do great. You know, anybody in this class is going to be failing, you know, unless you just don't do the work, because you're going to want to work. Now, you offer hope, and it has a better outcome than the negative. So, if you want a breakthrough, you need to give people hope, and you need to have hope. Hope is what breaks the depression cycle. Without hope, what do people do? People in a state of depression say there's no hope, what do they end up doing? You don't have any hope while I live. So what people need is hope. Okay? So that deals with section one. Now look at section number two. That's the drought. A drought of the soul. Okay, now the deep. Look what he says in verse six. This is the second stanza. Okay, verse six. 
of the song. He's going to repeat what he just said. Just like if you had three stanzas of a song, they basically say the same thing with different words. That's what he's going to do. So let's look at verse 6. Oh, my God, my soul is cast down within me. Oh, my God, my soul is cast down within me. So here he states his problem, and he states it to God. Therefore, what's he going to do? Since his soul is cast down, what's he going to do? He tells God, therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan. This is where he's located right now. He's located in the upper Jordan region where there are mountains, crags and mountains and and lakes and seas. And it's a very desolate type of a place. He says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm depressed, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to remember you from the land of Jordan, up north. I'm going to, right now, I'm just going to start thinking about you. And from the heights of Hermon, from the hill Mizar. And uh, Mount Hermon is uh, a mountain range, and Mizar is the summit of that mountain range that extends 9,000 feet into the air. And uh, it's uh, that mountain is the uh, it's usually snow-capped year-round, and it only melts at a certain point in the year. And it provides the watershed for the upper Jordan region. And so he says, I'm going to remember you. Just start thinking back and remembering you right now, right where I am. Okay. And then he says this in verse 6. Deep calls upon the deep. That means the sea and the depths of the sea. At the noise of your waterfalls. Some translations say water spouts. But what he has is the key word there really is the word noise. Uh, he says there is this tremendous noise, and it's a frightening noise. When you know, if you've been in the ocean, you hear those uh, waves pounding the sea. If you're a little child and you've not been to the ocean before, it's a very scary thing. And I think who was it we saw maybe one of saw some little child not too long ago who uh, one of the kids was a little older ran right into the water and the other one stayed away from the water because he was afraid of the sound of the waves pounding the sea. So here's the sound and uh, it's frightening. Now David's not afraid of the water. He's afraid of other sounds. And he's likening uh, what he's going through to uh, to the waters just crashing and making noise. Really what's happening is he's in a battle where there's a lot of noise. And it could mean he's deaf and he's scared to death. And he's depressed and he might lose this war. And uh, it's like a drowning man. Look what he says at the end of verse 7. All your waves and billows have gone o over me. He's like a drowning man who's being pulled under uh, pulled under because he's in the war. There's the noise of the war. It's like he's sinking, going down for the third time. He can't get out. He can't rescue himself. Uh, he has no sure footing. He sees himself like on the water and he's sinking. When you're on ground, you have something under your feet. Uh, it's just like he can't. He's like he's sinking and he's going down. And probably he's describing a state of depression because of the battle that he's in. But notice what he says there in verse 7. He says, your waterfalls, you see that? 
And in verse 7, he says, all your waves and billows. He calls them gods. He realizes he's in this situation because God is putting him there. It's God who's got him into this mess. He realizes that. He's doing God's bidding, and uh, he's getting depressed over doing God's bidding. Remember, God told Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach. And guess what Jonah does? He doesn't want to go to Nineveh. So guess what God does? God pulls him down in the water, doesn't he? Uh, here we have this king, and he's fighting this battle, and there's the war, and he's losing the battle, and he's being taunted by the enemy, and it's getting very depressing, but he realizes this is God's doing, and he's in the depths of despair. So look what he says in verse 8. Suddenly he has a realization. He says, the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. Command his loving kindness toward whom? Toward David. He has a realization that God's still here. Hey, God's not back in uh, Jerusalem only. Where is God? He's up in the upper Jordan, isn't he? He's right with David. God will command his loving kindness, his mercy, some translations say, his covenant love. God made a covenant with Israel. He's not going to let Israel uh, die. He's not going to allow David to be defeated in the battle. God will command his loving kindness in the daytime. Now watch this. What is David or the king in this passage doing in the daytime? What does he have to do in the daytime? He has to fight a war. The battle's going on in the daytime. And guess what he says? God's going to command his mercy and his loving kindness toward me in the daytime, during the battle. Notice he says God commands it. You see that? It's not just that God gives his loving kindness. You take it or leave it. He commands it. God makes a decree. If God makes a decree that his love comes toward me and his mercy is coming toward me, can anyone stop it from coming toward me? If it, God commands it? No. God's in charge here. So that's what God does during the daytime in the battle. He commands his loving kindness toward David. Then look at this, verse 8. And in the night, his song shall be with me. A prayer to the God of my life. So, guess what happens with God working with David during the daytime and giving him mercy, probably in the battle. At nighttime, what's David now doing? He's singing. He's praying to God in song. Do you see that? Verse 8. And in the night his song shall be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. So David is starting to change things. He's starting to see things a little different in verses 6 through 10 than he does in verses 1 through 5. So David sings. And look what he says in verse 9. I will say to God my rock. Oh, watch, watch this. Why have you forsaken me? Uh, why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemies? He's asking a question. In this... He asked these questions. Now, wait a second. I think David was having a breakthrough, but now he's starting to ask the questions again. What are the questions? Why have you forsaken me? No, wait a second. Has God forsaken him? Up in verse 8, what has God done? Commanded his loving kindness for him. God had forsaken him. But look what happens. He starts asking that question. Who does he ask the question of? God, my rock. He recognizes who God is, but he asks the question. He says, 
Why have you forsaken me, forgotten me, and why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemies? And why? I think he's not asking now God the question, why have you forsaken me? He's probably saying, why am I so faithless, knowing that God's loving kindness is toward me? Why, why would I uh, be... Uh, God hasn't forgotten me. Why do I think God's forgotten me? Why do I, why do I even ask God, why have you forgotten me? That's what he's saying. Why do I ask God that? If he's my rock and he's my loving kindness toward me, why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemies? If God's for me, who can be what? Why am I doing these things? See, so if you read it that way, suddenly it takes on new meaning. It's like Jesus dying on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You forsaken him. So what we have is you have this concept of his realization. Why is he asking these questions? As with the breaking of my bones, he says in verse 10. We don't know if that's a simile or whether maybe he's been injured in battle. My enemies reproach me while they say to me all day long. Look at this. They taunt him all day long. Now, probably they're not there next to him all day long saying, hey, where's your God? Where's your God? Where's your God? Where's your God? Not that, aren't But guess what? It's going through his mind all day long. Where's your God? That's the question. And guess what he said? He's already told us in verse 8. God, he realizes that God's loving kindness has been commanded toward him. He goes, God's his rock. And what he's saying is, I'm going to show you where my God is. And God's going to show up in time. You're going to find out where my God is when he shows up. And then he asks this question in verse 11. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And again, he's he's asking in light of of all this, why are you cast down? Why is my soul cast down? He cast down. God's my rock and his loving kindness is toward me. And why are you disquieted within me? And then he says, why you shouldn't be like that? And then here comes back the answer. Hope in God. You see that? Hope in God. Same solution, but there's a difference here. Watch this. Hope in God. The help of my countenance and my God. You see the difference? What's the difference between that verse, the help of my countenance and my God, versus verse 5? Look at that. What's the difference between verse 5 and verse 11? In verse 5, it's the help of the countenance of my God, but what is it in verse 11? His countenance as well. David's countenance is changing. David is having a new attitude. Hey, when David realizes that God's his rock and he really hasn't forsaken him, and God's loving kindness is commanded toward him in the daytime in the battle, suddenly David's countenance has changed, and you know what happens when suddenly you have a breakthrough and you realize it? You realize you've been thinking wrong all along. You've been in a state of depression. And suddenly there's that breakthrough, and suddenly, instead of looking, you know, 10 years older, you now suddenly look 10 years younger. You ever see how a person who comes out of depression looks younger? Their countenance changes? His countenance has changed. So David realizes that there's a, been a breakthrough here. Okay? Now look at verse 1 of. 43. We're going to see David describe this depression as darkness. And look what he says here in verse 1. It's very interesting. He says, Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against the ungodly nations. 
Oh, deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. So David says, Lord, vindicate me. How does he want God to vindicate him? Vindicate him against who? Against the ungodly nation. Judge, he's fighting a battle. He's fighting against ungodly nation. He's fighting against a very unjust, ungodly king. When he says, vindicate me, he says, look, I have been saying God is with me. I've been saying I fight in the name of God. And guess what? I've been losing this battle. Now you need to vindicate me. So what's he asking God do? to do? Help him win the war. Show up and win the battle. And that's what he's asking. He says, show up. Vindicate me. I've been bragging on you. Now vindicate me. Show them that I am right. And then look what he says in verse 2. For you are the God of my strength. Do you see how things are starting to change? Why do you cast me off? You're the God of my strength. I realize, why am I losing this battle? Why do you cast me off? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Because I hear those taunts. Where's your God? Where's your God? Why am I, why am I in this state? This is ridiculous. See? Oh, send your light and your truth. Uh, help me to understand. Send your light. He's in darkness now. That's what depression is like. It's like being in a state of darkness. He says, Lord... Allow your light to shine upon me. Give me clear sight so that I see, uh, I have a vision of really what the outcome is. Get me out of this darkness. He says in verse 3, sing your truth. Give me knowledge. Let me know what the truth of the situation is, this battle. Give me a correct perception. A lot of times, we need to have a light cast upon the situation. We need the truth. Facts are not always the truth. Do you know that? Facts and truth are totally different. You might think that you're in trouble because you look at the facts, but guess what? That may not be the truth. God may be ready to come in the next second. So uh, he wants to have some light thrown in the situation, get him out of his darkness, give him some knowledge that he knows what the situation really is. Uh, help him to see things as God sees them, not as he sees them. And then look what he says. Verse 3. Let them lead me. Let the light and the truth lead me. Not the taunts of the enemy. Not my imaginations. Let your light and your truth lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle, which is located where? In Jerusalem. Allow me to win this battle and allow me to get back home. So he's He's what he's asking God for. He wants to win the battle. He wants to get back home. To your tabernacle, he says. Then I will go to the altar of God, to the God of my exceeding joy. He'll go and he'll make a sacrifice there at the altar of God. And then guess what he says I'll do? And on a harp I will praise you. Oh my God, I just can't get ready to get back home and get pick up that guitar and start, you know, praising the Lord. And so then he asked this question in verse 5. Why are you cast down on my soul? I think he's saying, you know, like this. Why am I, why are you being cast down? Why am I in this state of depression? This is ridiculous. Why are you disquieted within me? Shouldn't be. God's my rock. He's my loving kindness. He's doing all this kind of stuff. And the answer comes back. Hope in God. For I will yet praise him. Praise him where? Jerusalem when he gets finished or will he start praising him right now 
probably to start praising him right now. The hope of my countenance, the help of my countenance, and the help of my God. So, David realizes, or whoever the king is, it's David, probably is David, that uh, his perceptions are all wrong. And uh, the, the pawns of his enemy are wrong. Enemy says, where is your God? And God says, I'm right here with you. I didn't stay back in Jerusalem. I came with you. Victory's coming. You can expect it. But it's not necessarily going to come how we expect it or when we expect it. Because it's in God's timetable. Uh, but we don't have to fret. Our countenance, even in the midst of a situation, no matter what the situation, whether it's fits, you know, teaching a vacation Bible school in a bad part of town, to uh, where, you, where it's dangerous, or whether it's facing an operation, and things look bad, and we can go right to a state of depression, when we have clear sight and clear thinking, we have the truth, we realize God has not abandoned us. He's right here with us. He's going to see us through. And it may not happen the way we understand it. But we just need to rest in the Lord. And Jesus is our example. Facing death. Now this was a sure death. Uh, he said, Lord, if it's possible, allow this cup to pass from me. Didn't he say that? But if it's my time to go, guess what? I'm still going to trust in you. And Pilate put him to death. And it looked like it was all over, and the disciples said, let's go fishing. But three days later, God raised him from the dead, and guess what? Everyone's countenance changed. Now, we're all in this room going to die one day unless the Lord comes. But guess what? We don't die like others. We don't accept those taunts. Well, where is your God now that you're lying on your deathbed and taking your last breath? He's right here with us. We might think he's forsaken us, but he hasn't forsaken. Have hope in God. Have hope in God when you are, you know, in your daily life, and your daily work, facing situations that you don't particularly enjoy. Have faith in God in your last moments of life because God is with us. So Jesus says, I'm troubled in my soul, he says in John 12. I'm troubled in my soul. But what shall I say? Take this cup from me? No. But your will be done. And so he faces the situation knowing that God's with him and God does come through. It's in God's way. It's in God's time. That's why the resurrection is so important for Christians. The resurrection changes everything for Christians. One day the scripture says that after one day God's going to raise everybody from the dead that's a believer. And we're going to enter into a kingdom of God where there's no more wars and no more problems. And we're going to have peace on earth. Uh, that we don't have anymore. And we're going to look back then, and we're going to remember our lives now. And we're going to say, why did I fret? <laughs> why was I so afraid? Why did I get down? You know, Why was I cast down? Why was I so depressed? Oh, why did I say, oh me, oh me, oh me? Look at this. Wow, I can't believe it. Greater than I anticipated. Not when I anticipated it. So we need to be telling people hope in God. But that hope always involves the future and always involves waiting. We'll pick up at Psalm 44 next week.
Lord, we thank you for this song. It, puts, it shows us how we can fall into a, a psychological state. When we get our eyes on the circumstances and we listen to the voice of the enemy rather than allowing truth and light to guide us. Once David moves from psychology to theology, once he moves from his state of mind to the state of truth, things become clear. Oh Lord, help us to do that. Help us to put put the scriptures into practice in our lives. No matter what things look like, help us to realize that you're with us, you haven't forsaken us, and if you're with us, the victory is ahead. In Christ's name we pray.